Chapter Eleven of The Two Gun Man by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Penn. A touch of local color. A few months before her first meeting with Ferguson, Mary Radford had come west with the avowed purpose of absorbing enough local color for a western novel. Friends in the east had encouraged her. An uncle, her only remaining relative, beside her brother, had assisted her, so she had come. The uncle, under whose care she had been since the death of her mother ten years before, had sent her to a medical college determined to make her a finished physician. But destiny had stepped in. Quite by accident, Miss Radford had discovered that she could write, and the uncle's hope that she might one day grace the medical profession had gone glimmering, completely buried under a mass of experimental manuscript. He professed to have still a ray of hope, until after several of the magazines had accepted Mary's work. Then hope died, and was succeeded by silent acquiescence and patient resignation. Having a knowledge of human nature far beyond that possessed by the average person, the uncle had realized that if Mary's inclination led to literature, it was worse than useless to attempt to interest her in any other profession. Therefore, when she had announced her intention of going west, he had interposed no objection. On the contrary, had urged her to the venture. What might have been his attitude, had not Ben Radford been already in the West, is problematical. Very seldom do we decide a thing until it confronts us. Mary Radford had been surprised at the West. From Ben's cabin in the flat, she had made her first communion with this new world that she had worshipped at first sight. It was as though she had stepped out of an old world into one that was just experiencing the dawn of creation's first morning. At least so it had seemed to her on the morning she had first stepped outside her brother's cabin to view her first sunrise. She had breathed the sweet moisture-laden breezes that had seemed to almost steal over the flat where she had stood watching the shadows yield to the coming sun. The somber hills had become slowly outlined. The snow-caps of the distant mountain peaks glinted with the brilliant shafts that struck them and reflected into the dark recesses below. Nature was king here, and showed its power in a mysterious, though convincing, manner. In the evening there would come a change. Through rifts in the mountains descended the sun, spreading an effulgent expanse of yellow light, like burnished gold. In the shadows were reflected numerous colors, all quietly blended, making contrasts of perfect harmony. There were the sinuous buttes that bordered the opposite shore of the river, solemn sentinels guarding the beauty and purity of this virgin land. Near her were sloping hills, dotted with thorny cactus and other prickly plants, and now rose a bald rock spire with its suggestion of grim lonesomeness. In the southern and eastern distances were the plains, silent, vast, unending. It seemed she had come to dwell in a land deserted by some cyclopean race. Its magnificent, unchanging beauty had enthralled her. She had not lacked company. She found that the two diamond punchers were eager to gain her friendship. Marvelous excuses were invented for their appearance at the cabin in the flat. 
She thought that Ben's friendship was valued above that of all other persons in the surrounding country. But she found the punchers gentlemen. Though their conversation was unique and their idioms picturesque, they compared favorably with the men she had known in the East. Did they lack the subtleties, they made up for this by their unfailing deference. And they were never rude. Their very bashfulness prevented that. Through them she came to know much of many things. They contrived to acquaint her with the secretive peculiarities of the prairie dog, and, when she would listen with more than ordinary attention, they would loose their wonderful imaginations in the hope of continuing the conversation. Then it was that the subject under discussion would receive exhaustive and altogether unnecessary elucidation. The habits of the prairie dog were not alone betrayed to the ears of the young lady. The sage fowl's inherent weaknesses were paraded before her. The hoot of the owl was imitated with ludicrous solemnity. Other fowl were described with wonderful attention to detail, and the inevitable rattlesnake was pointed out to her as a serpent whose chief occupation in life was that of posing in the shadow of a sagebrush as a target for the revolver of the cowpuncher. The quaintness of the cowboy's speech, his incomparable bashfulness, amused her, while she was strangely affected by his earnestness. She attended to the chickens, and immediately her visitors became interested in them, and fell to discussing them as though they had done nothing all their days but build hen-houses and runways. But she had them on botany, the flower beds were deep, unfathomable mysteries to them, and they stood afar while she cultivated the more difficult plants and encouraged the hardier to increased beauty. But she had not been content to view this land of mystery from her brother's cabin. The dignity of nature had cast its thrall upon her. She was impressed with the sublimity of the climate, the wonderful sunshine, the crystal light of the days, and the quiet peace and beauty of the nights. The lure of the plains had taken her upon long rides, and the cottonwood, filling a goodly portion of the flat, was the scene of many of her explorations. The pony with which her brother had provided her was, Ben Radford declared, a shining example of sterling horse honesty. She did not know that men knew horses quite as well as he knew men, or she would not have allowed him to see the skeptical glance she had thrown over the drowsy-eyed beast that he saddled for her. But she was overjoyed at finding the pony all that her brother had said of it. The little animal was tireless, and often after a trip over the plains or to dry bottom to mail a letter, she would return by a roundabout trail. Meanwhile, the novel still remained unwritten. Perhaps she had not yet absorbed the local color. Perhaps inspiration was tardy. At all events, she had not written a word. But she was beginning to realize the possibilities. Deep in her soul, something was moving that would presently flow from her pen. It would not be commonplace. That she knew. Real people would move among the pages of her book. Real deeds would be done. And as the days passed, she decided... She would write herself into her book. There would be the first real character. The story would revolve about her and another character, a male one, upon whom she had not decided until the appearance of Ferguson. 
After he had come, she was no longer undecided. She would make him the hero of her story. The villain she had already met, in Leviatt. Something about this man was repellent. She already had a description of him in the notebook that she always carried. Had Leviatt read the things she had written of him, he would have discontinued his visits to the cabin. Several of the two diamond punchers, also, were noted as being possible secondary characters. She had found them very amusing, but the hero would be the one character to whom she would devote the concentrated effort of her mind. She would make him live in the pages, a real, forceful, magnetic human being that the reader would instantly admire. She would bear his soul to the reader. She would reveal his mental processes, not involved, but leading straight and true to... But would she? Had she not so far discovered a certain craftiness in the character of the two-diamond stray man that would indicate subtlety of thought? This knowledge had been growing gradually upon her since their second meeting, and it had become an obstacle that promised difficulties. Of course she could make Ferguson talk and act as she pleased in the book, but if she wanted a real character, she would have to portray him as he was. To do this would require study. Serious study of any character would inspire faithful delineation. She gave much thought to him now, keeping this purpose in view. She questioned Ben concerning him, but was unable to gain satisfying information. He had been hired by Stafford, her brother told her, holding the position of stray man. I've seen him once down the other side of the cottonwood, the young man had said. He ain't saying much to anyone. Seems to be a quiet sort, and deep. Pretty good sort, though. She was pleased over Ben's brief estimate of the stray man. It vindicated her judgment. Besides, it showed that her brother was not averse to friendship with him. Leviatt she saw with her brother often, and occasionally he came to the cabin. His attitude towards her was one of frank admiration, but he had received no encouragement. How could he know that he was going to be the villain in her book, soon to be written? Shall we take a peep into the mysterious notebook? Yes, for later we shall see much of it. Dave Leviatt, she had written in one place, age thirty-five, tall, slender, walks with a slight stoop. One rather gets the impression that the stoop is a reflection of the man's nature, which seems vindictive and suggests a low cunning. His eyes are small, deep-set, and glitter when he talks, but they are steady and cold, almost merciless. One's thoughts go instantly to the tiger. I shall try to create that impression in the reader's mind. In another place she had jotted this down. I shouldn't want anyone killed in my book, but if I find this to be necessary... Leviatt must do the murder, but I think it would be better to have him employ some other person to do it for him. That would give him just the character that would fit him best. I want to make him seem too cowardly. No, not cowardly, because I don't think he is a coward, but too cunning to take chances of being caught. Evidently she had been questioning Ben, for in another place she had written, Ferguson. I must remember this. All cowboys do not carry two guns. 
Ben does, because he says he is ambidextrous, shooting equally well with either hand. But he does not tie the bottoms of his holsters down, like Ferguson. He says some men do this, but usually they are men who are exceptionally rapid in getting their revolvers out, and that tying down the bottoms of the holsters facilitates removing the weapons. They are accounted to be dangerous men. Ben says when a man is quick to shoot out here, he is called a gunman, and that if he carries two revolvers, he is a two-gun man. Ben laughs at me when I speak of a revolver. They are known merely as guns out here. I must remember this. Ben says that, though he likes Ferguson quite well, he is rather suspicious of him. He seems to be unable to understand why Stafford should employ a two-gun man to look up stray cows. Below this appeared a brief reference to Ferguson. He is not a bit conceited. Rather bashful, I should say. But embarrassment in him is attractive. No hero should be conceited. There is a wide difference between impertinence and frankness. Ferguson seems to speak frankly, but with a subtle shade. I think this is a very agreeable trait for a hero in a novel. There followed more interesting scraps concerning Leviatt, which would have caused the range boss many bad moments. And there were interesting bits of description, jotted down when she became impressed with a particularly odd view of the country. But there were no more references to Ferguson. He, being the hero of her novel, must be studied thoroughly. End of chapter 11